Hey, thanks for listening in. This is a special edition on the Christ Alone podcast. I've been working on a Bible study uh, six weeks through the meta-narrative of Scripture is what I'm calling it. Kind of a study through redemptive history, the whole overview of the Bible in six weeks. Uh, this, the scope being uh, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. And uh, This week we were in uh, the first of three weeks spent talking about uh, redemption. And we had some people who were going to be missing, so I recorded the content to be able to post on the podcast so they could listen to later. Um, if you're a regular listener of Christ Alone and you have stumbled onto this podcast as a result of it, I hope you do enjoy what you hear. If you have any more questions, like to hear other content uh, from the Bible study or just ask me anything else about it, please get a hold of me and we will work on it. Just find me at Facebook at facebook.com backslash Dolacek, D-O-L-E-C-H-E-C-K, and uh, direct message me there. Love to hear from you. So without any further ado, we'll get into the Bible study uh, covering the first week of redemption and the meta narrative of Scripture. Thanks. We've been doing the meta narrative right. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation are our four kind of big acts. Uh, creation was first week. Fall was this past week. And so I kind of left us trying to wrestle with this question I posted on Facebook of not just how is it that God allows evil to exist, but how can it be that God allows me to exist? And if we're going to work that problem all the way down, we need to be um, sitting with some tension in our own lives, who we are as as humans apart from God, apart from Christ, what our reality is. Because it's, it's easy to, to look out there and say, gosh, there's tons of problems in the world. But if we're going to be faithful, we have to kind of start addressing the question of, not only do I, does God let all of these things happen, but why do I get to happen? I'm a sinner. I have transgressed against a holy and righteous God. I have chosen my own self over him time and time and time again, why has he not fixed that evil too? <laughs> Does that question make sense? When I put that on Facebook, what did that do to did that did that do what did that do to the inside of any of you? What did you think about that? Literally nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I think uneasiness is a good word, but I'm not, huh? It's more unanswered questions. More unanswered questions. Well, that's what we're here for, right? <laughs> Let's confuse everyone. Yes. Well, um, okay, that's fair. I don't want to answer too quickly. Yeah. I I think that that here, but I'll I'll talk anyway. That there is some tension that has to exist in order for the gospel to really make sense. It, 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 the gospel comes to us as good news. And in order for there to be good news that makes sense, it c comes in context with, well, what was the bad news was before this? And so understanding 
a biblical worldview is always going to involve this kind of tension of um, understanding how bad it really is so that when we view what God has done for us in Christ, it becomes the good news that it's supposed to be. It, it does leave a lot of unsettling tension. I mean, it should. I mean, and I, I'm not sure if you're asking the questions, then, if, you, if that is more along the lines of the sovereignty of God still puzzling you with as far as a fallen creation and the sovereignty of God, or if it's, or if it's, other, it's taken on other dimensions yeah. of, um, I don't know, I don't want to make any guesses. But. No, 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 no. Uh, I feel a lot better with what we talked about last week after just watching that 45 minutes. Which or one? Listening to that. Just the, the Chandler one? The first one, yeah. I yeah. haven't to do the second one yet. Yeah. I do after that. Um, I feel a lot better with that. I've tried actively, because Melissa, yeah, last week was like, oh, I've tried to do this. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I didn't even apply that to my week. So this week I tried really hard at like doing this for God. I'm doing this for God. And then even when I did something bad, I said, this is for God. Because he made a point to say everything is. It's like everything, all events glorifying God. I think that's kind of like the challenge as far as like, I think in my head, always growing up, I always thought, well, that's Satan working through those people. Or that's the temptation that way of like, you don't look at it as. God putting it to like the whole example of, you know, like, you know, in the things like scripture never shows God actively being evil and never blames God of the evil, but it's all to glorify him. So that kind of mm-hmm. made me, you know, think deeper into it than like, I think growing up it was always like, God is good, Satan is evil, you know, like. Which is not a bad distinction. Way. Right. <laughs> right. That. The, the timeline of when that glorifying, I think, kind of helps out as well. I mean, we're, and we're not to the consummation yet. But when, when Chandler's talking about that in his sermon, when we talk about that all things glorify God, it, it isn't to say that evil doing glorifies God, but that the day comes when evil doing is punished. And so, therefore, God will be glorified that these the evil that does happen will result in God's glory when evil is punished. That doesn't mean that that murder and and theft and just, I mean, the horrible things we could list, oh, well, that's all done for glory, the God's glory. Well, no, I mean, that's, that's um, what is that? Uh, when they talk about when you delight in evil, uh, that's perverted. I mean, it's, it's, it's perverse to delight in evil, and God is never saying to be doing that but the, the glorifying of God is that at the end, all of, when, when God takes all those evildoers, and, and we'll get to this in redemption, he either pours out their punishment on Christ on the cross, his justice is either dealt there, or justice is given to them by an eternity in hell, which will glorify God as the, as the authority over all evil. And so, yeah... It, you don't want to take it so far as to say, my sin glorifies God. It doesn't. Uh, your sin, it can glorify God when you receive forgiveness in Christ because he has bore the punishment you deserve. Or if you're an unrepentant sinner and you persist in your sin and you're punished for, hell, for eternity in hell, that is, that is a glorifying of God as an all-powerful creator who has all authority and power over those things. 
So it's a tough thing to wrestle through, and I and we can't get the answer. I mean, you know, I think it's a wonderful thing to wrestle with. Um, so I'm super glad about that. Um, not glad that you're wrestling, but you know what I mean. It's 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 tough stuff to go through, or to, you know, not. I don't know that anybody can say, "Oh, I have." When Chandler, I like the analogy. Of this sermon that I shared with on, on the post, um, Chandler was talking about, and now I just have lost the way that he had said it. Um, oh, we, we want this to be like a math problem. We want this just to all make sense. One plus one equals two. Oh, I see what you did there. <laughs> you added one, and you took another one, and you made two. And we, and we want Scripture to, to be a math book. And it just doesn't look, it doesn't turn out that way. It, it doesn't work like math, where it's just, oh, I get that, and oh, I get uh, oh, that. Work, that's how that all works out. That there's still some of this working that's being worked out that in our finitude in our finite minds it's, it's, isn't able to comprehend all that he's actually doing so I think it's a great thing to wrestle with and I think it's a it's an uh, I think it's an honoring thing to God to, to wrestle with how is this going to work out you know how does this all fit together so good good stuff creation then fall and I wanted to press on what are we supposed to do because that is the pressing question. Your biggest problem is what are we going to do with your enmity towards God? Your biggest problem is, in many ways, God. God is your only hope, but he's also your biggest problem. So we're in Genesis 3. Um, oh, wait. For the first point I have, I don't have, I don't have one, of my, one of my own outlines. But for the first point, um, this is where Christianity takes on a lot of its peculiar flavor. That, and I... The way that it is going to design or describe how God takes those who are sinners and brings them back to himself. Most religions are going to talk about that they're going to give you a list of do's and here's the things you do to climb your way back to God. Most, most religions are involving ladders. And so you set your ladder up against the right wall and you do wrong after wrong after wrong after wrong. And if you climb high enough, this is how you get back to God. But the Christian message is not of how you get back to God. The Christian message is how God has come to us. That's why the incarnation of Jesus is, is so important when we get to it next week. That it's really the story. Not of, We're not going to sit here and figure out tonight, here's all the things we all need to be doing so that we can please God. That the narrative of Scripture is not, here's what you need to do. It's here's what God has done for you. So there's kind of a big flip in the way that we view how we are reconciled to God. Uh, Judaism and Islam, the Muslim faith, are going to give you things to do. I mean, and we could obviously throw out the, the big narrative of terrorism or whatever and, and the martyrdom that, these, that the radical Muslim would go through to achieve some certain higher level of heaven or a blessing because they have done this righteous deed. It's all about climbing back to God. But what we see starting here in Genesis 3.15 is not here's what you need to do, but here's what I'm going to do to, to get you back to myself. Okay? So do you understand the, the difference there in those things? On the back sheet is a cross chart, right? So this might be new to you, um, but it it's typically used for what we call sanctification or growth and godliness or whatever. But there's those two lines. And the top line is the holiness of God. 
right? And the bottom line is uh, a sinfulness of man. What's it called? Growing awareness of my own sinfulness. So, and this talking about growth in these things. But basically, it has these two lines established of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. Well, what a lot of religions will try to do is either lower the holiness of God. And so we say, oh, yeah, God's holy, but, but we're going we're to kind of wipe away the holiness and the justice of God. And we're just going to say God's just really loving. God is loving. But, but they wipe away all of those wrath and justice and righteousness and just replace it with, well, yeah, but he's more like grandpa in the sky. Sure, you've messed up, but he loves you anyway and not that big of a deal. So a lot of religions will try to lower the holiness of God or they'll try to elevate the sinfulness of man. They'll say, you know what? Nobody's perfect. Not that big of a deal. Everyone makes mistakes. I mean, how could, you know, or they'll say, you're not as bad as you could be, are you? I mean, was anyone as bad as they could have been today? Please tell me no. I mean, sure. You, I mean, you could have done a lot. Huh? Still got a job. You're still here with Tess. She hasn't kicked you out yet or nothing like that. I mean, you know, you haven't, you haven't been at the night, the days. You know, that's true. You haven't been yet as bad as you can be. And so there are some religions that would say, well, you know, you, as long as you're not as bad as you can be. You know, you're making, you're making mistakes. And they'll try to lower these. They'll try to lower the holiness of God and elevate the righteousness of man so that they can somehow come back together. But Christianity is adamant in its expression of the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, the justice of God, and the reality of how sinful man really is. That our that we are utterly depraved. That when the fall of man happened, it plunged us into sin and deserving the wrath of God. So what we are going to march through quickly is not how we can bring down God's holiness or how we can elevate man. He's not really as bad as he says he is. But the chart, the cross chart there shows us that there's a mediator that brings those two realities together and it has a cross in there, which is more next week. But so that's kind of point one. What we see is God's always acting by promise and faith. So here in Genesis 3.15, we, we've kind of flew through um, chapter 3 last week, but um, we can read through the curses here. This is after the fall, right? So this is the third weekend. We're in chapter 3 of Genesis. We're in trouble, but we're going to try to get somewhere. Uh, this is just after the fall. God comes down and and then uh, Eve lies in verse 13, or she says, she gives an excuse, the serpent deceived me. Let's read 14 through uh, all of the curses there, 19, someone or multiples or whatever. I don't care. Then the Lord God said to the snake, you will be punished for this. You alone of all the animals must bear this curse. From now on, you will crawl on your belly and you will have to eat dust as long as you live. I will make you and the woman hate each other. Her offspring and yours will always be in it. Her offspring will crush your head and you will bite their heel. Unto the voice of, of thy wife, and 
I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat it, eat of it. Cursed is the ground of the sky throughout thy sake, and the sorrow thou shalt, and the sorrow shalt thou eat it all the days of thy life. Life. So those are the wonderful, wonderful curses there that go on. And you mothers are familiar, aware of the childbearing curse that is in there. And that's where it's actually ramped up right there. So you can thank Eve. But in verse 15, we have, and I, I think I have in your outline there, a big fancy Greek word called proto-euangelion. It doesn't look like English. It shouldn't. Proto-euangelion. And that means this is, this is the first glimpse we get of the gospel. Euangelion is just it looks kind of like evangel which evangel is just it means the proclamation good proclamation so here we have the first good news of the Bible in verse 15 of chapter 3. It comes in the curse of the serpent but he makes a special promise here can you pick up on what the promise is that he makes? About the seed, yeah? What's going to happen? And he's going to have kids. There's going to be offspring. Something's going to happen to him. End of 15. Isn't it 15? Yeah. There you go. The offspring of who will bruise whose head? One of Eve's descendants will do what? Of who? Of the serpent. Of the serpent. So there's this there's this war going on, man and woman, or man and, and and Satan, or the woman and Satan, and there's this prophecy that comes out right here about the serpent, and it says, and about the seed of the woman. So there is a son coming from the woman who is going to bruise the head of the or is going to crush, excuse me. He he's going to crush the head of the serpent and he sh and but the serpent will do what to the man's heel he shall bite your heel mine's I don't know why mine is saying bruise there it says bruise and bruise bruise the head bruise the it says bruise and bruise well and that's and I don't know why that's that's what I'm more prepared for is crush and bite because from all that I've been taught that the the head the well, but it doesn't really matter. If you get a head bruise... <laughs> if you, exactly. So the bruise doesn't matter. If you're bruised in the head, is that going to heal worse or better than a bruise on the heel? I mean, the, the heel bruise is going to be... A, it's not that it does anything significant, still hurtful, but the bruise in the heel is going... The, the serpent's going to bruise the offspring of the woman's heel. But the offspring of the woman is going to bruise the head, which is a defeating blow, is well, the point that he's trying to get across here, is that this enemy, this serpent, to be understood as Satan, is going to have his head crushed by the seed of the woman. 
So already, right here in Genesis 3, we have some typology going on. Okay, So this is, this is biblical typology. That really, when we read the Old Testament, what we really want to be looking for is pictures of who Jesus is. What's going to happen when this seed of the woman shows up? And there's um, a couple places in the New Testament. The reason why we read the Bible this way uh, in, let's see, John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus is having a conversation with the Pharisees and he's condemning them. And he says, you search the scriptures and you look at it and you read them and read them because you think that in them you find life. But all along, these, these scriptures point to me. And he's, he's saying to them that all of this scripture is, is pointing to Jesus. And, and he also says, that you've heard about the Emmaus Walk, that after Jesus um, is crucified and, re and resurrected, he goes walking with a couple of guys on the road to Emmaus. And, and this is Luke chapter 24, verse 27, that another place we go to kind of have this, this uh, Christ-centered this Christ-centered uh, view of, of, of the Old Testament is that he says to them, it, it says there in Luke 24, 27, that he explained to them uh, through the law and the prophets all of the scriptures concerning himself. And Jesus is walking along with these guys and he, he walks them through the law, which is typically known as the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the law and the prophets, and all the ways that it was pointing to Jesus. So when we read our Old Testament, we want to do it with an eye for how is this pointing me to Jesus. And this is our first bright example of what's going to happen in the future. There is a, there's an offspring of the woman who is coming, who's going to crush the head of the serpent. The serpent is going to bite his heel. The servant is going to wound this uh, offspring of the woman, but it's going to be a fatal blow for Jesus. You see the typology there. We, we know that coming... So what happens now from here on out, <laughs> we see the children of God's people always looking for this redeemer, this rescuer, this reconciler. All along, they're looking for this one Who's going to be coming? So what happens? I mean, we, we're going to fly through here kind of quickly. What, what happens next in the storyline? If you look down through your headings there, what happens next in, in Adam and Eve's life? They have a kid. Have a kid. And then they have? I mean, the first one the first one is Cain. What does she say about Cain? She says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And there's a sense there possibly that Eve is thinking, here it is. <laughs> we, we've had the promise that I'm going to have a, a descendant who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And look, I've, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And that she's looking and thinking, well, here it is, the Redeemer. Well, then she has another one named Abel. And what, how does it go between these two brothers? Not so well. Cain kills Abel. Um, but so all along, we've we got to fly through this. We don't have time to go through the whole storyline. We can get in then to Noah. We could see how Lamech or Lamech, however you want to say his name, verse 24 of chapter 4 and verse 23, that, that humanity, though this promise is out there that some great rescuer is coming, humanity gets worse and worse and worse and worse. The first kids, one of them is a murderer. 
Well, that's kind of a bad track record. That's a bad way to start humanity is that they, they fall. And then the first one is, is a murderer. And, and so that doesn't go well for him. So then she has Seth and she thinks, boy, now finally the promised one, maybe Seth is the one. And there's this looking and this longing and this hope for one who is coming that's going to crush the head of the serpent, even though he might be bruised. They actually say this about Noah when we see that at the end of chapter 5. Um, oh, that's not right. Yeah, Genesis 5, 29. So, yeah, when when Lamech or Lamech or... Huh? They lived a little longer back then, yeah. He had a son. He had a son. <laughs> Abraham fathers Isaac at, at 100. So, I mean, yeah, it's... um. Ages are kind of, Methuselah lives to be, what, 600, 700 something years old? Noah was 500 500 years old. After Noah was, after he was 500, he fathers three children. So something funky is going on there with um, ages of life. And if I could give you some amazing scientific explanation of what that is, I would, but we don't know. I mean, if it's so close, some people have have a positive or have positioned the idea that because it's so close to the fall that humanity that how the fall does take effect on our physical bodies that that our bodies weren't as torn down but that's just all speculation we don't know <laughs> I don't know I don't know why but so anyway he and Lamech fathers Noah calls his name Noah verse 29 of chapter 5 saying out of the ground that the Lord has cursed this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. So there's this longing, and Lamech thinks, Noah, here he is. Here's the one. He's going to, uh, he's the, he's, and, and actually Noah is a, is a typology. He's a foreshadowing of Christ. What does Noah do? He is, he finds favor in the eyes of God, and um, God considers him a righteous man. And he builds the ark and all of humanity is wiped out except for Noah and his family. And there is a typology, a picture there of when judgment comes on the world, there is a redeemer in Noah who rescues those who are his family. So there's typology going on there of of even with Noah and the flood. Uh, Thoughts, questions before I go on into the next thing about the proto-euangelion. Typology is just a big fancy theologian silly word that t- it's just types and shadows. So um, we could go to Colossians uh, chapter two, which talks about this. Maybe I will just to make sure. Um, Colossians two talks about it this way. So here we have, and this is verse 16 of chapter 2, and he's talking about these faults. So when we talk about typology, it's just this is a type of Christ. And so it's a foreshadowing would be another way to say it. It's a, um, you know, isn't that a literary term that you have a foreshadowing of something happens, you teach literature. So there's a foreshadowing. So the way I explain it to my kids is, you know that form music you hear right before somebody opens the door they shouldn't open? That foreshadows that something bad is going to happen in Freddy versus Jason. There you go. So and there's all and, and so there's tons of biblical typology. Uh, 
what, what I'm, why I'm stressing typology is that they, many times we read the Old Testament and we think what it is is as examples of how I'm supposed to live my life when they do something right and examples of how I'm not supposed to live my life when they do something wrong. And to an extent, that might be that there's some benefit to that. But but we're going to get to Abraham, and Abraham is not your moral example. Uh, Abraham is not the guy that you look at and say, "Oh, this I'm supposed to live like Abraham." Well, Abraham, um, when they went into Egypt, he said his wife was his sister, so they wouldn't kill him to have her. And he basically surrenders his wife to the Pharaoh to sleep with her, so that he'll get left alone. Well, that's a kind of a bad moral example. Please don't be like Abraham. If somebody's threatening to take your wife from, stick up for her. Say, no, sir, over my dead body, you have my wife. You know, you don't say, oh, she's just my sister. Go ahead. You know, it's, and so <laughs> he does it twice. It's a, it's a terrible thing. And so, but, so we're, we're looking at these people. It's typology. It's showing us types of Christ. Abraham is, is a... Is, is very important in what he brings for us in Christ. So Colossians 2, um, 16. This is Paul condemning false teachers. He says, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath. There's all these rituals we could go through. We don't have time tonight. But in Leviticus, all these rituals and things that were set up. And he says, These are a shadow of the things to come but the substance, the essence, the substance belongs to Christ. And so he's writing and he's saying that all of these Old Testament pictures, all of these Old Testament feast days, all of these Old Testament uh, practices, they, they're, they're a shadow. The substance is Christ. Did that explain typology or not? Okay. I mean, that this is, that's, the typology is just we're, we're looking forward to who um, it's supposed to help us see who Christ is and what he has done. Other questions or thoughts on Proto-Euangelion, the first gospel. Guys ever read the first gospel and thought of it that way before? Is that a new term to you? Did you watch The Passion of the Christ? Yeah. Anybody watch Passion? No? Huh? Sorry, gosh, I'm old. You haven't seen it? Mel Gibson, have you seen it? So there's the scene in the garden where Jesus is praying and he gets up and he cr there's a snake that's crawling around in between his legs and then he gets up and he stomps the head of the snake and that's where that this um, message that's where that's kind of coming out of but that only applies to the older of us so sorry guys so um, <laughs> moving on quickly into the second so we're talking about this is Genesis 12 so we're going to hop over not very far but a little ways to Abraham and Abraham is this really important character in our Old Testament. He's the father of the faith. So when we're talking about Christianity is a faith that doesn't say, here's all the things you've got to do to climb to God. It is here all the things God has done to come to you. Abraham, it's not about him being a great guy. It's not about him following all the rules we've already discussed. He was a kind of a moral failure on many levels. But we see him being sought out by God. We have the call of Abram. This Now, he's Abram at this point, which just means, um, I think, blessed father in Hebrew. And his later, his name gets changed to Abraham, which means blessed father of a multitude. Uh, his name gets changed here later. But right now, he's just Abram. And so, this is chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Someone can read that. 
Can I ask you a question? How many I wills are in that portion? How many yous, you do, how many you do are in there for Abraham? There's you will. There's the, there's the go from. There's leave from. That I, I, all I'm pointing out is that the, the, the stress of God's initiation, God's promise and the response of faith. The way God w- operates with his people is, is promise and faith. Promise and a response of faith. We see this crystal clear in chapter 15 of Genesis. Abraham goes on. Uh, we have a really cool story with Melchizedek, uh, the high priest. And there's just great stories we don't have time for tonight. Um, but just getting this idea of God being a God who promises and then, and then faith is the response to God's promise. So this is 15. Uh, do I have it down in your guys' sheets? No. Okay, so it's just verses 1 through 6 with the emphasis on 6. Someone? I will. Excellent. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what wilt thou give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is of Damascus? And Abram said, Behold, thou hast given me no offspring, and the slave born in my house will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Ooh, reckon. Nice emphasis. Appreciate that. So here we see, again, God extending promise to Abraham. God extending promise to Abraham. He's saying, here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I'm going to do. And what's on Abraham's end? Verse 6. He believed. He believed. God promised to do this. Abraham believed it. And what does God do because he believes it? He counts it or reckons. Is that your say reckons? Reckons. He reckoned it to him as righteousness. Here we see justification happening in the Old Testament. We see, and because we're biased this way, we see Abraham becoming a Christian. <laughs> I mean, this is the birth of Judaism. But we, we see in many ways we're looking back into the Old Testament And this is God's work with the church as the church comes out of Judaism. But this is God making a promise that out of his, that Abraham's descendants will number the innumerable. That this, this is how God is going to move. And he believes God and God counts it to him as righteousness. Um, A few things we can emphasize. Let's go maybe to Romans 4. Because I have on there the Davidic covenant, but... If we don't get to too much of it, it would be all right. This is just a stress. I mean, the good news comes to us because where it hits us is not as we are people working hard to please God, working hard to to make God happy. The gospel comes to us as desperate sinners. 
The gospel comes to us as people who have walked away from God, who have sinned against Him time and time again, and He comes to us and He, and he promises. He says, here's the good news. This is what I have done. Now this side of the cross, the gospel comes to us as this is what I have done. Prior to the cross, the gospel came to them as this is what I'm going to do. Now it comes to us, this is what I have done. And, my, and then a promise, and then faith in that promise is the reconciliation. And so here we have Abraham just kind of emphasizing how Abraham's justification happens. So this is Romans chapter 4, if you have it, verses um, 1 through 4 or 5 or 8. I don't know. make sense that God is not operating with his people in a in a I'll pay you X amount of dollars for every good deed you do and then if you get the scale heavy enough you do enough good deeds and then you earn enough money or earn enough wage for me to bless you and that's how a lot of religion is laid out you know what I'll trade you this for that and so you glorify me so many certain times and then voila cha cha ching uh, you've You've uh, weighed the glory meter up enough that now you and I are good to go. That's not the way God operates with his people. Now, that doesn't mean there's not the command to glorify God and whatever. It's still there. But the reality is we aren't glorifying God. (laughs) And we are sinning all the time. We are falling short. We are not glorifying God in everything that we do. So what then? Well, this is where Abraham, this is where this whole working of the Old Testament shows up of God operating with his people through a promise and faith in the promise. Abraham is looking forward to these descendants. So David, quickly, this is Second Samuel. So let's clear back at the left side, closer to Genesis than we are in Romans, way back. Story of David really kind of comes on the scene in First Samuel 14, 15, something like that is where David shows up. Um, uh, David's got all kinds of problems. What's this? Okay, name a story you know about David. Goliath. Yeah, Goliath. So let's talk typology just quickly. Everybody knows the story of David and Goliath. Heard it. Goliath is a big, tall giant, and he says, Whoever can defeat me will defeat all the Gentiles. I defy you to come out and defeat me. And no, everyone's, you know, peeing down their legs as Goliath is this big, giant warrior. No one wants to fight him. And what happens? Little shepherd David gets a. Shown up to the, the 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 meek the meek shepherd shows up brings cheese to his brothers on the front lines and he's like why are we afraid of Goliath and long story goes on and David picks up his five smooth stones 
and sh- and says, "How dare you defy the armies of the living God? Just as I slayed the lion and the bear, so will I slay you." And he and we get seen the song, couldn't we? He goes round and around and around. And he slings it and hits Goliath in the head and knocks him down. And he goes and he chops his head off and keeps his sword. Which is pretty. <laughs> it's pretty bad. But typology. They don't teach you that part. They skip that part where <laughs> That's the best part. It's like I mean you talk about gory. The Bible's got some stuff in it, man, that'll freak you. That's that's good. I mean, it's good old fighting stuff. Is that he chops Goliath's head off and carries his head around and he's later he comes across and he when he's escaping from uh claiming insanity, he goes and he gets the sword of Goliath and gets it back. But anyway, the way that the story of David and Goliath is often told is it casts you in the light of David. And it says, you need to be David. And you need to not fear your Goliath. You need to run towards your Goliath so you can beat your Goliath. And that's a, it's, a, it's a typology of Christ. That, that this isn't a story about you beating your giant. If, if, we are, if it's up to us to beat our Goliath, which is death, which is the wrath of God, if it's up to us to beat death, you're in trouble, right? It's a it's a typology of the meek one, the meek son, who shows up at the battle and kills Goliath on behalf of the whole nation. And what Jesus does, he comes to earth, the meek, beloved son, shows up, he defeats death, he kills death on the behalf of the whole nation for all of God's people Jesus goes to the cross, conquers death. So that's what—that's typology. Is is seeing the Bible in that way. See, it's not a collection of stories about all the things you need to do. It's a, it's a story about what Jesus has done. So David is another. We have the Abrahamic covenant, is what we call this promise to Abraham. Here we have the Davidic covenant, and this is in Second Samuel. Did I say that part? Chapter eight or chapter seven. 2 Samuel chapter 7. So the story of David, that story of David and Goliath is like 1 Samuel 17. So we're all the way through the rest of 1 Samuel on into 2 Samuel. And here comes this promise to David. David wants to build God uh, his big um, a house, a place of worship. Well, I can't go into that. So this is verses 8 through 17. This is God's uh, promise coming to him. Through Nathan, I believe. So I'm going to read 8 through 17. Yeah, through Nathan, the prophet Nathan. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Verse 12. Father, and he shall be my son. When he commits iniquity, 
I will chasten him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But I will not take my steadfast love from him, as I took it from Saul, turn my foot away from before you. Was it verse 16? Sure. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in the accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to me. So here we have another promise coming to King David. And it's, it's the coming of an offspring. It's the coming of a son who's going to rule forever on the throne of Israel, of David. Now it's a mixed prophecy because we see iniquity. He's thinking Solomon. Solomon is the king that follows King David. Well, after Solomon, it really goes bad. Then we have Rehoboam and Jeroboam and the nation's divided. And then it isn't very many years before they get taken off into captivity from the northern tribes and the southern tribes get taken off into captivity and Israel is ruined. And it just it, so this promise isn't happening uh, in, in the in the way that they are seeing it. But there is someone coming, right? It says, uh, uh, "When your days are filled, and lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you. He shall come for your own body. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever." Now, if we went quickly to Matthew, the first gospel. This is, this is a force. It's the Old Testament always pointing us to Jesus, pointing us to the coming one, pointing us to the coming prophet. We didn't go, we don't have time, but the prophet, priest, and king, the coming prophet, the coming Moses, the coming uh, Abraham, the coming uh, promised seed, um, the coming king, the coming priest. Well, if we read this genealogy, we see... Uh, Matthew chapter 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So right there, chapter 1, verse 1 of the Gospel of St. Matthew, here he is saying to people, hey, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Who is he? He's the one that was coming from Abraham. He's the son of Abraham we were looking for. Who is he? He's this son of David that we've been looking for. This one we've been searching for. Jesus. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, Perez, Zerah, Tamar, Perez, father of Hezron, Hezron, Ram, Ram, Aminadab, Aminadab, Nashon, Nashon, Salmon, Salmon, Boaz, by Ruth, Rahab, excuse me, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. And we can read on down there. It comes all the way down to Joseph, the adoptive father of Jesus, that there is this lineage going on for reals in the Jewish line down to Jesus, who is the one the Old Testament is always pointing us to. This book, Redemptive History, is the story not of how mankind works hard to get back to God, but it's a story of how God has been working to get mankind back for himself, essentially. How man, how God has come to us. Not how man gets to God, how God has come to us through the son of David, through the son of Abraham. I have on there the three offices, which we don't have time for, prophet, priest, and king. Those are just three pretty calm, really obvious offices in the Old Testament. Moses, prophet. A prophet um, presents God to the people. So a prophet's always out there saying, repent, here's your sin. Repent, here's how to get to God. A priest was always someone who was presenting sacrifices. They are a mediator. They're, put, they're bringing the people before God. And then the king is, is the one who is 
uh, exercising God's rule and authority. And the only reason why I bring that up is when we get to Jesus, we see him fulfilling all three roles of the Old Testament as prophet, declaring the word of God, as priest, operating as the mediator, bringing God and reconciling back to men, and as king, whose rule and authority is in effect and will one day be fully consummated, but that's week six. And I'm out of breath. So, (laughs) any thoughts, questions, comments on what we just flew through there? That was trying to cover the whole Old Testament in about 40 minutes, so... We missed a lot. Certain things in there that you think are interesting and, and have questions about or would like to know more about, fire them away or, you know, whatever. I, I think it's kind of interesting about the David and Goliath thing. You talk about us always trying to make up for our sin. Mm-hmm. And I think I look at it that way. It's like we're David and we're trying to slay our sin. You know, right. To What we tend to do, what we tend to do, is we, we insert ourselves as the hero of the story, and the Bible just blows that to pieces. You know, there, there's there's no way for any of you to read the Bible as and to read the world as you're the hero of your story. You're not. The, the Bible is pointing to a bigger hero than us, thankfully. <laughs> you know, but yeah, it's it's easy to. We want to be driven. That's when I said at the start that. Theology should always drive us to doxology, that knowledge of God should always lead us to worship of God. We study this thing not so that we think, well, boy, I can. this is all i got to do to get back to God. It's to, just to lay us low and rejoice that, that the coming Son did come. And that's what we get into next week. We'll look at just Jesus, hopefully, next week.